From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. We met together and took out her sewing machine. She showed me how to use it and crafted this. It probably took about 15 or 20 hours, so I don't know if it's cost-effective, but it's certainly, I feel really good when I use when I carry it. You're the one. You make bath time lots of fun. Rubber ducky, I'm awfully fond of you. Bo 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 dio. Rubber ducky, joy of joys. When I squeeze you, you make noise. Rubber ducky, you're my very best friend. It's true. Sitka is a sleepy town in southern Alaska populated mostly by fishermen and their families. And not much comes to shore aside from the hundreds of salmon boats that are the basis for the town's economy. But in November of 1992, people in Sitka started noticing something strange. All along their beaches, hundreds of ducks started washing ashore. But not the normal, quacking, flapping-their-wings type ducks you might expect. They were plastic yellow rubber duckies, Ernie's own favorite bath toy. It turned out that 10 months earlier, an ocean liner carrying bath toys from Hong Kong to Tacoma, Washington, had run into a major storm in the middle of the Pacific. A container that held about 29,000 toys went overboard and busted open, spilling its entire contents into open waters. After spending months drifting around in the biggest bathtub there is, some of the toys finally made landfall, just north of sleepy little Sitka. There's a sizable beachcombing community in that part of Alaska people who scan the shoreline and tide pools for anything interesting they might find. These rubber duckies obviously created a lot of excitement. They were somewhat degraded after spending 10 months in salt water, so sometimes it was hard to tell what they were, but people collected them regardless. Pretty soon, oceanographers got wind of the flock of ducks that were invading the Alaska shoreline, and they were just as excited as the beachcombers. It's surprisingly hard to track ocean currents, since only about 2% of the debris in the Pacific makes landfall. This means that scientists have to drop hundreds or even thousands of tracking bottles into the water to get a sense of where currents lie. And here in front of them was the perfect data set. They put out advertisements in newspapers and encouraged people to look even more thoroughly for hints of yellow plastic along the beach. And in the nine months after the first duck made landfall, people in Sitka found over 400 rubber duckies. That's about 40 times as many items as oceanographers usually get to use. Each ducky was carefully documented and photographed, and scientists used the data to track currents from the Bering Strait all the way to southern Alaska. It's strange to think that an accident like a cargo ship losing a crate of rubber duckies could contribute more to scientific knowledge about ocean currents than the real tracking bottles that scientists normally use. The duckies were no more than trash, just another tragedy of plastic being dumped into the ocean. But they ended up doing a lot more than drifting aimlessly, forgotten in the middle of the Pacific. They were found, documented, and ultimately made a great contribution to modern oceanography. Not too bad for a castaway rubber ducky. So today, we thought we'd take a look at other instances where trash is something more than just trash. We discard an awful lot without really thinking about it. So our five contributors today are taking a look at where our trash goes, the creative things that people do with it, and even questioning what it means to throw something away. Act 1, the original trash compactors. 
We investigate small-scale composting and the worms who do it on Stanford's campus. Act two, FABMO. If you've ever wondered what to do with all those fabric scraps you have lying around, and we know you have them, we have a solution for you. Act three, art in unexpected places. We find out how even a city dump can provide the materials and inspiration necessary for a whole new Bay Area art movement. Act four, stuff for sale. We bring you behind the scenes of an estate sale and take a look at what the stuff being sold really means to people. And finally, act five, cataloging mess, a short story about bringing a box of forgotten photographs back to life. We're reinventing trash today on the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm Hannah Krakauer. Stay with us. When you toss a banana peel into a compost bin, as most of us are doing these days with the green movement in full force, it ends up going to a huge industrial composting complex, where it's mixed with other compost materials and industrial strength chemicals. Though this is definitely a step in the right direction, there are students on Stanford's campus who say that kind of big-scale composting is overrated. They'd rather watch worms, the original composters, do it themselves. Lydia Santos checked out some homegrown small-scale composting and learned that watching a worm finish that banana for you can be a surprisingly rewarding experience. Between childhood art projects involving empty toilet paper rolls and popsicle sticks, in high school environmental science projects building terrariums, Ian Montgomery, a sophomore here at Stanford University, has been working toward his goal of living simply from a young age. Ian describes living simply as a lifestyle in which you try to limit waste, whether that means trying not to waste time doing things you don't enjoy, or limiting waste in a more literal sense through composting and recycling. At home in Southern California, Ian and his family practice a very interesting form of composting called worm farming, a process which Ian has continued here on Stanford's campus. I sat down with Ian in the backyard of Chi Theta Chi to learn more about this project. My name's Ian Montgomery. I go here to Stanford University. You know, I'm a sophomore, and yeah, so I guess I'm going to tell you about my worms today. As a freshman in Paloma last year, Ian suggested that the dorm should start a worm farm of their own in order to take a more active role in composting their food waste and to simplify their composting process. After getting dorm funds to pay for the project, Ian ordered the worms and waited for them to arrive. I was really excited for the worms to come, but I don't know, I guess they were shipped a little late or something, so every day I'd run down to the front desk at Paloma and ask the girl who was there, Anne, if my worms had come yet. And the first time I asked her, she looked at me, she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then I, like, explained to her exactly uh, what I was ordering. And then uh, she got really excited, too. And then, like, one day I got home, and I had this voicemail that was like, Ian, your worms are here! Like, Anne was screaming into the phone. I came down. And actually, it wasn't the worms. It was just, like, the box for the worms. And then the worms came a few days later. So, anyways, I just kind of, I, I realized that, but my roommate didn't realize that. So he came back later that night, and he was like, he was worried that I just left. He thought I just left uh, like a thousand worms under my bed for the night. He was worried that they were all going to escape. But before we go on, I guess I should let Ian tell you a little bit more about the process of worm farming. So what exactly is worm farming? It's not actually farming. It's more of a it's composting, actually. And to worm farm, you use these worms. They're different from your normal earthworms. They're called red worms. And you basically get a giant box fill it with a couple thousand worms 
and throw in your trash and let the worms eat your trash. They go crazy. It is it is so, so awesome. They'll eat anything that's plant-based, so anything with cellulose, like tea leaves, coffee grinds, banana peels, everything fruit. They can eat meat, but supposedly it gives them worm gas or something like that. Uh, yeah, so newspapers, magazines, it'll blow your mind what these worms can go through. It's awesome. What becomes of all the stuff that they eat? So your average farm is four different layers and the matter cycles through from the top layer down to the bottom layer and the bottom layer is basically just really good fertilizer um, you can throw that on your flower beds and then there's also a little worm juice that comes out and that stuff is supposed to be the best fertilizer that you can get worm castings they also call it you can go and sell that at the farmer's market for big bucks <laughs> what exactly do these worms look like they're smaller than an earthworm and they have kind of a red color, but you know, they just look like your average worm. Squirbly, traveling packs. <laughs> so, after much anticipation, the worms finally arrived at Paloma. We had a ceremony in Paloma to drop the worms into the worm farm, and uh, there are a few of us out there who were actually holding the worms, and the rest of the dorm was kind of crowded around. I'm sure there were probably about 40 or 50 people there, and we were holding the worms up like. They were this like holy gauntlet, and we dropped them all in one by one. And uh, yeah, the, there were most girls in the dorm were definitely disgusted by that. <laughs> How did the kids in Paloma react to this idea? Uh, I'm gonna be honest, most of them were pretty weirded out. There are a few people who I was surprised with how enthusiastic they were. I'd go out and check on them every couple of days, and every time I'd see someone had you know, put in some more veggies or some more fruits. So there was definitely some excitement, too. In a way, these worms helped to create a more personal aspect to composting for Ian and the residents of Paloma. Rather than just scraping their plates into a compost bin in Flomo and then forgetting about it, they were able to witness their food scraps slowly being broken down into fertilizer, while at the same time feeding and nourishing living, breathing creatures almost like pets. Did you name any of the worms? Yeah, there are five worms that always stuck to the top. Collectively, they were called the Jackson Five, and uh, they had their names Michael, Jermaine, Tito. I forget the other two names off the top of my head, so those were my boys. They kind of became my extended family. I definitely have a strong bond with those worms. There's there's so many different worms that I've become friends with in my time. It it's hard to assign a general personality trait to all worms. You have your lovers, you have your fighters, you have your dreamers, you have the lazy worms who sit in the corner and just eat the easy food like the orange peels. You know, they have you have your worms who are more scared of the light, who sit down at the bottom tier and just kind of wait for the soil that's pretty much perfect. And then you have your worms who are more adventurous, who are always kind of at the top greeting you when you open the roof of the worm farm. Oh, Ian, what are you going to feed me now? Oh, hey, buddy, got some grapefruit and a little bit of coffee. Yeah, so, you know, I'd say, I'd say they're, you know, they're just like people. Just like people. <laughs> Having these worms around to treat as pets with personalities that need to be fed, rather than some sort of trash compactor for waste to be emptied into, makes the act of composting a lot more meaningful. And beyond that, they provide a much greener alternative to our current composting program and produce fertilizer, which could then be put back into our own plants here on campus. If you think about your waste cycle, it's kind of ridiculous that 
you actually have to ship your trash, you know, hundreds of miles away in gas guzzling cars to basically just sit out and rot. Like, you know, if, if it's not going to smell bad, you might as well let it rot in your backyard. And it's kind of fun to be a part of that too. And it's kind of fun to see your magazines and your newspapers and your orange peels go turn into soil in a matter of weeks and then, you know, put them back into your trees. <laughs> Hearing about all this, I start to feel like we've been missing out on a great opportunity. Why would you want to get rid of your trash if you can instead use it for your own benefit? Not only are worm farmers producing great fertilizer from their own trash, but they get the added benefit of about a thousand low-maintenance pets for less than the cost of a trash can. And if you're not much for gardening, you could even make a profit off of your trash by selling the fertilizer produced by the worms. Not to mention, it's just such an amazing opportunity to be able to actively witness your waste being consumed and broken down into something useful. Just imagine like Time Magazine sitting on top of a couple thousand worms. You'd think there's no way the worms would want to go through that kind of glossy paper. But sure enough, you could open the uh, top of the worm farm a couple weeks later and worms are crawling through all the pages. It's just the most, it's one of the craziest things to see. It's a really slow process, but it is, it's ridiculous. Yeah, but it always blows my mind. I don't know, it's just cool that they're freaking worms, you know? <laughs> just... No one would ever think that they could have a use other than kind of clearing dirt and enriching the soil for your plants. Who knew they could eat your food? I always, I get a huge kick out of that. With all the benefits and fun to be had in worm farming, why would we want to ship our compost away? For only about $13, you can have a thousand lovable little pets of your own and start getting a lot more out of your trash. The Paloma worms are now free and living somewhere near Lake Log, but Ian is planning on starting another farm in the backyard of Chi Theta Chi and welcomes anyone who wants to take a look at the worms and learn a little more about them. Do you think you've learned any important lessons from these worms? Yeah, I've, uh, I've learned a lot about being a father from these worms. I've learned uh, what it takes to uh, raise a family of a couple thousand. You know, the, the time it goes into teaching them life lessons, feeding them, finding them a home. So I, I think it, they've made me a better person. Any final remarks about the worms? Buy some worms. They're much better pets than dogs, cats, or rabbits could ever be. Lydia Santos is a sophomore at Stanford and a producer for the Storytelling Project. So much of what we throw away is leftovers from some bigger project, like the plastic container that those eighth-inch nails came in, or the newspaper you laid down to make sure you didn't get paint on the dining room table. And while the onion peels from the soup I made last week are right at home in a compost bin, there are some things we're not quite as willing to give to the worms just yet. In our second piece, Colleen Hansen and Laura Chow looked at one creative way that crafters are dealing with leftover scraps of fabric that would otherwise go to waste. Colleen tells the story. Once a month, a community of fabric artists and crafters come together at an unremarkable warehouse in Midtown Palo Alto. 
insider tables piled high with fabric scraps discarded from designer showrooms around the Bay Area. In many ways, this fabric distribution event, known as FABMO, is a textile junkie's dream. You come and you're attracted by the colors and the textures and your mind starts to wander in all these different projects that you can work on. FABMO, which stands for Fabrics and More, is a peninsula distribution event founded and organized by Jonathan and Hannah Cranch. It began over 11 years ago with the purpose of finding new homes and uses for the thousands of fabric scraps from designer showrooms that would otherwise be thrown away. This is Jonathan Cranch, one of FABMO's founders. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization that rescues discontinued designer fabrics and keeps them out of the landfill and puts them into the hands of appreciative, clever, creative people. I had been to FABMO distribution several times before. It had always seemed to me a hidden gem in the Palo Alto community, a magical source of fabric, paper, and inspiration. This time I came with a microphone and with the intention of finding out what others made with the fabric and what or who kept this textile machine running. So there we were one Friday afternoon, myself and another contributor to the Stanford Storytelling Project, walking into this warehouse in Midtown Palo Alto. We were greeted warmly at the door by Holly, the greeter on shift, with whom we chatted briefly and were then told to enjoy ourselves. The fabric was stacked in neat piles. In fact, Jonathan and Hannah organized a team of volunteers to keep the tables neat and continually restocked. And the stacks were roughly organized by size, color, and texture. There were velvets, linens, jutes, corduroys, leathers, wallpapers, cotton prints. Most sizes no bigger than the palm of your hand. Occasionally, a larger piece was folded into the pile. With so much to choose from, there's no one place to start. And so we began exploring, sorting and diving into the piles looking for treasures. It was a wonderland of color. Some of the other women in the room browsed with purpose, while others moved slowly, adding fabric to shoulder bags when something caught their fancy. We talked to a few of them. My name is Kimberly Lee. I live in Los Altos Hills. How do you start? Nav- like, how do you navigate your way through all these piles? Um, yeah, it was a little overwhelming. I think I've, I've circled the tables three or four times now, and just reminding myself to, to stay on track mm-hmm. with the one project that I'm working on, as opposed to just stuffing lots of things into my bag. And Kimberly, you're here at FABMO looking for anything in particular? It's a personal project. Um, It's the second time that I've come. And I picked out a couple of pieces when I was here last and came up with the beginnings of a a bag that I'd like to make. Mm -hmm. But I'd I'd like a third third piece, and the color that I had picked out last time didn't match, so I'm coming specifically to try to complement what I've got already. Oh, my name's Holly. And it's just all wonderful. I just love the quality of the textiles. Um, I'm a, I, I consider myself sort of a textile geek, so I like knowing what everything's made out of. And these are really, really high-end fabrics, a lot of them. Um, they're woven on European jacquard wo- looms with really high-quality fibers. It's not like what you buy at a fabric store. Uh, my name is Anna Maria, and I am doing a kids' class at my daughter's school. I'm looking for material for, to cover journals. They're going to be decorating journals and then using them as gifts. 
After browsing through all the fabric offerings and meeting a few new friendly faces, we were eager to talk to the man behind it all. Jonathan Cranch, who along with his wife Hannah, founded FabMo over a decade ago, was sitting in a small cubicle just inside the door, answering appointment emails and updating his FabMo calendar. The few days I could see highlighted on screen were packed with appointments from beginning to end. There was scarcely a moment to take a breath. It looked like the distribution weekend was going to be busy. My name is Jonathan Cranch. I live in Palo Alto, um, and we, uh, my wife and I have the organization called FabMo.org or FabMo Inc. Hannah's records go back probably 13 or 14 years. Uh, we started when I was building, and we would go up to the design center and for the summer market and winter market and see what was new and Hannah found out that the discontinued samples were just trash for them. She said, I can do better. She was teaching art at the time in Palo Alto and so she would pick up the fabrics and, and distribute them to the various schools in Palo Alto. And that grew to five school districts and children's theater and things like that but the seasonality of schools meant there was a seasonality of our market as well. So we started using uh, the Palo Alto Free Cycle and Craigslist, and we started developing a list of interested and interesting people that would uh, welcome these fabrics and do something creative with them. Those truckloads, Jonathan and Hannah, spend five to six hours every Monday driving up to the city and meeting with the showrooms, quickly add up. Jonathan estimates that they keep 20 tons a year of fabric out of the landfills. And most of that fabric, about 90% of it, finds its way into the eager hands of crafters. Um, it, it was a few garbage bags every six or seven weeks, and now it's a truckload every week. We, we're empty nesters, so we have a five-bedroom house, and we had three bedrooms full of fabric. Um, and, and yes, we were doing this out of the house, and then we realized there were some challenging issues around that. So we, we have now been here at, at Fiber High for... Six months. My contact list is over 1,400 names. When I started, I think I was about 300 names. And, and that's been less than a year. So it's, it's grown. It's grown. Word of mouth has helped. Jonathan and Hannah try to make each one of those 1,400 people feel welcome. Each person is greeted, if by name if possible, at the door when they arrive. And every appointment is scheduled in advance through an individual email from Jonathan. It's scary how many of those 1,400 I recognize. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying the 1,400 people come here. You know, our, our traffic in a, in a given month, we do this once a month, and our traffic has been averaging about 220 people in a two-day distribution. Um, today we are... We are um, approaching 120 just for the day, and we've been open for six hours. Okay. So I think we're ahead of our normal pace, and I think a lot of that has to do with the, the art exhibit last week mm -hmm. or two weeks ago. We had 85 new people that subscribed to the email list, and uh, and it, it's, it's wonderful because they self-select, and they, they just tend to be a really wonderful community. It is a community, and you know we work very hard. To, we have appointments. People can't just come in and, and, and do the Macy's Basement or a rummage sale thing. Mm -hmm. We want appointments so that we can manage the size of the crowd, 
we don't pick and choose who they are, but you know, if there are the right number of people, the the networking that happens, the sharing of techniques, uh, the sharing of what kind of projects they do, and pretty soon people are looking for each other's fabrics, and it's just a, it's it's a, it's a it fills my heart. Yeah. It fills my heart. Fabmo, it seems, has grown not only in size but in purpose. And as has been the pattern thus far, the emphasis was again on the people. Fascinating because for a long time our effort was to keep stuff out of the landfill and put it into the appreciative hands. And then people started coming around and saying, look what I made with the stuff I got. Mm -hmm. And we realized there was another story, which is what happens afterwards. For example, there's a gal that comes up from Los Angeles to get fabrics. And last Christmas they did 400 lap blankets for seniors. And that is cool. But then it's leveraged because she can't sew 400 lap blankets on her own. So she engaged the Girl Scouts to do that. So now this stuff is kept out of the landfill. It goes to a productive use. It engages other people in that productive use. And then the ultimate recipients are the seniors. Fabmo relies heavily on the support of volunteers like Holly, the woman who greeted us so cheerfully well, at the door the when we arrived. The organization is, is volunteer. So um, after you go a couple times, you start straightening up or whatever, and it got bigger and bigger, and now they actually have formal slots. So I'm a greeter. I am greeting people at the door for two hours today. Um, then I got involved this past summer in organizing the art exhibit that we had two years ago, two weeks ago. And that was just because we were all really excited about things we had made, and we made a show. That was really fun. FABMO's first art exhibit was both an opportunity to showcase projects made from FABMO materials and a chance for other like-minded textile geeks from around the area to meet each other. Jonathan describes the event. I don't know how to describe that. It was the most exciting thing I've experienced in years. Yeah. We, we rented the Quadris Conference Center in Menlo Park, uh, just off San, on San Joe Road, just before 280. Beautiful facility. And we had 32 exhibitors uh, exhibiting everything from stuffed animals and wearable art to, to bags and purses and cell phone uh, um, what would you call it? Cell phone cases, cases yeah, I, jewelry, um, all kinds of things that were made with stuff that came primarily with stuff that came through FABMO. Uh, we had about 350 people that came through, and uh, the energy level in that room was was intense all day long. A very, it's what I call happy chatter. Mm-hmm. It's what we experience here, but that was an order of magnitude greater. Mm-hmm because we had that many more people and uh, it was just a wonderful a wonderful thing and every the reaction that we got from the attendees from the volunteers from the exhibitors and from the staff those of us that were behind putting it together it was universally uh, just really really enthusiastic we're counting on next year being a Lollapalooza <laughs> Undoubtedly FABMO is performing a necessary and useful job, keeping perfectly good fabric scraps out of the landfill and repurposing them, giving them a new life. But I find it hard to label and categorize FABMO as a simple repurposing or recycling program. Something really vital is going on in this room, 
and Holly, the greeter, and Anna Maria, looking for material for an elementary school project, and Kimberly, who brought two of her friends along. Laura, one of the contributors to the Stanford Storytelling Project, sums it up in I this love way. the idea that I think they got all these fabrics for free from, you know, people that make the fabrics because they're fabric samples, and then they give them to Fabmo, who gives them to people who do great things with it. So it's like this line of giving, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like they repurpose the fabric and they repurpose the generosity, too. You know, so many of the things that I think people make here um, get made or given to other nonprofits or schools or art classes and things like that. So, Take Kimberly Lee, for example. She's working on her second Fabmo sewing right. project. So you're working on a bag right now? Yes, and I, this is a, the first bag that I made yeah. when I came last time. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I love the lining there. <laughs> Thank you. So I was really pleased. My friend that had introduced me had um, encouraged me. to. We, we met together and took out her sewing machine. She showed me how to use it and crafted this. It probably took me about 15 or 20 hours. So I don't know if it's cost effective, but it certainly, I feel really good when I use when I carry it. Mm-hmm. So and was this made entirely with fabric from Fabmo, or did you? Yes. Yes. Well, actually, I, the cord I got from a third friend who okay. said that she had it in her collection, and it's. I know that she comes here, so it's, she's likely to have gotten it from here. And how did you hear about Fabmo the first time? Um, from from a, the, my friend that had helped okay. me with the bag. Okay. Yes, and I actually uh, invited a couple more friends this time, one who's an art teacher mm-hmm. um, and the other who I know is just terribly creative, and uh, so they were pretty excited to, to come. She was first introduced to Fabmo by a friend, made her first bag with the help of a friend, and brought two friends along with her today, introducing Fabmo to some future devotees. I asked Jonathan what the best part of Fabmo was, and he replied, without hesitation, the people. We've made friends and some, some wonderful people. You know, it's just something that you have to experience. It's been a great ride. We have fabrics that have gone to Ghana. We have finished products that have gone to Fiji. We have gal that sends stuff to the Philippines to nurture a cottage industry there. We've got going to the Pacific Northwest. There's a gal in the Northwest that works with the uh, Tulalip Indians, and they take some of our leathers and turn them into uh, little packets and purses and, and things like that. It, it's, it just doesn't seem to have an end. It's the sort of stuff that makes your heart overflow. At least it makes my heart overflow. Want to know something funny? Neither Jonathan nor Hannah have a background in fabric. Fabmo came to be not because they loved textiles, but in part because they loved their community. They saw a need they could fill, and because they loved each other. And my wife doesn't, doesn't sew, but she is absolutely devoted to recycling and repurposing, and I'm absolutely devoted to her. And in a world inundated with statistics, charts, graphs, numbers, I find it reassuring that in the end, it is our personal relationships with each other, with other individuals, that make the real difference and keep things moving. Colleen Hansen is the production manager and a, con- and a contributor to the Storytelling Project. She graduated from Stanford in 2008. 
Laura Chow is a contributor to the Storytelling Project. It's all well and good to intervene before something is unnecessarily thrown away. But what happens the vast majority of the time, when our scraps and discards roll away on a dump truck to some distant site most of us will never see? It turns out that even then, there's a chance for reuse and reinvention of our trash, for everything from paint cans to metal objects to buckets to dirt to just about any found object you can imagine. Rebecca Fifner and producer Matt Larson went to San Francisco for our third piece to find out more about the unique art program that's set up at, of all places, a dump. You guys want to see everything, right? Yeah. Right? Okay. Micah Gibson is as enthusiastic and proud of his job as most San Franciscans are of their city. And he's about to take Matt and I on a tour of his place of work, the San Francisco dump. So this is the transfer station, and this is where all the trash in San Francisco goes before it goes to the landfill. We transfer it into the larger trucks here. And it's a giant pit. We call it the pit here. And it's about as big as a football field, and it's about 15 to 20 feet deep, and it fills up and empties about every day of the week. I think right now it's between 12 and 1,400 tons a day. Micah gives tours almost four times a week, and these tours at the dump are highly sought after, mostly by elementary schools. We usually b- book a year in advance, and the, the tours that we do with the children are booked through the Department of the Environment, and they actually get to choose where they want to go. You know, they can go to the, they can go to the dump, they can go to the waste treatment plant, or there's a program at Golden Gate Park that they can go to. But ours is really coveted. There's good reason why this particular tour is so popular. Just like the kids, Matt and I didn't come here just to learn about trash. Have you guys ever been to an art show? We came to learn more about the Dump's Artist in Residence program. This is our art studio. We'll clean up this whole area and it will turn into a gallery. This is where we show all the art. It might seem odd to house working artists in the middle of what some might call San Francisco's colon, but like a lot of things at the dump, it was a creative solution to an otherwise glaring problem. When the dump had problems with seagulls... We have to try to keep the seagulls out of here as much as we can because it's, it's not healthy for them, and they make a mess. They put a hawk on the payroll. It's, it's a Harris hawk, and we have a falconer come out. And he flies the bird around and it scares the seagulls away because it's a natural predator. When they realized that people were throwing away cans of perfectly good paint, the dump had an answer to that too. They, they mix light colors, so white and gray and, you know, they make a brown probably. They, we put them into five-gallon jugs and then anyone can come get free paint. So it shouldn't be much of a surprise that the dump created the Artists in Residence program to tackle a much larger question. How do you raise awareness about the 1,400 tons of trash generated daily in San Francisco? 
they started it because they wanted a way to rethink the natural resources that people were using, you know, and throwing away. It started in 1990, and it was uh, started by a woman who kind of got the ball rolling on everything. Her name was Jo Hansen, and she was a local artist and activist who was doing a lot of environmentally aware work, and she had a, a big home on Octavia Street. And she started sweeping up around her house and just picking up all this paper and debris that was flying around in the wind and kind of keeping her block clean. And she started doing these art projects with all these letters and all kinds of things she'd find. And I think someone from the city contacted her and and they wanted to show her where the trash went. And so they brought her out here and she just thought it was an amazing, you know, resource for artists. They would love to have it. One of the projects I did uh, there was a tribute to Joe Hansen. That's Scott Oliver, one of the San Francisco Dump's alumni artists and residents. While I was there, I swept every day as this kind of meditative practice. But, I, you know, I amassed all, this, all these sweepings. And the piece actually, like, there were a couple of objects that were produced. One was this kind of hourglass made out of two five-gallon water bottles, and it was filled with the sifted sweepings. It was shown with a photograph of her sweeping in front of her house and then a photograph of me sweeping at the dump. Scott is a project-based artist living in Oakland, and he first came to the dump on a tour just like ours. Scott is drawn to found and discarded objects, and he's interested in their hidden and not-so-hidden narratives. For him, the residency at the dump was an opportunity to explore these objects and how they intersect with us. I think it really started as a kind of intuitive feeling about but both found objects and sometimes discarded the value of these things like becomes much more subjective i guess like it's not set by a store or a corporation and it's it's sort of a second life they exist out beyond their initial inception and and at that point i think that it becomes much more subjective most objects that are used have this kind of like patina of having intersected with people and circumstances and conditions and experiences so though it's not necessarily always explicit in the objects they carry with them this baggage of history and and have these sort of implicit stories. Everything around us is sort of made or designed with some kind of intentionality behind it. And to me, that makes all this stuff a lot like sculpture. Like, there are these forms that someone considers and thinks about and and do have meaning. Though I think we tend to kind of like just see them for their function. That's the downside to functional stuff. When an item no longer functions the way we originally intended, we throw it away. These unwanted items end up here at the dump. It's the artist's responsibility to see these things for more than just their original intended function, and they get the first chances to reinterpret them. And we've actually just started to weigh things as they go out to see how much the artists actually collect. And the last residency, it was a lot. It's something like 22,000 pounds or something. Lots of chances. In fact, the program requires that the artists get 99% of their material from the dump. And the artists come in here with their shopping cart. We actually call this the big store because it's like going shopping. And they find a shopping cart that's been thrown away. And then they come in here and they fill up the shopping cart. It's, it's a surprise sometimes, sometimes when people are like, are, are you the artist here? You know, and they're like, oh yeah, they, they know about the program. And it's funny, sometimes you know, they'll hand you something uh, or they'll hand the artist something. You always have to accept things they hand you. They, oh, you can make art out of this, you know? It's a canvas. Of course you can. We've had people who have come in and dumped things and then came to an art show and been really surprised at what was made out of it because, you know, a lot of people think that art is paintings and drawings and, and, you know, sculptures and things like that. 
they're not thinking about these materials in that way or, or haven't thought about them that way yet. So, you know, when the program first started, it was garbage art. You know, you could tell it was garbage. It was art made from from garbage. But now I th there's such a fine line that you can't, you know, you wouldn't guess that this is garbage or it came from garbage. And that's an important distinction. Making art that people would look at and say, oh, that came from trash, isn't the point of having artists at the dump. Scott explains. Because it is about creating awareness rather than solving the problem. I don't think that people making art out of discarded objects is, is going to solve the problem. The problem, of course, being waste. Over 500,000 tons a year at this transfer station alone. I mean, I don't know. I think there's this part of the recycling and reuse equation that I think doesn't get talked about enough, which is the sort of psychology and culture of consumerism and the kind of space that creates in people's minds about if you have something and you don't need it anymore, you just get rid of it. And if you need something, you just go to the store and buy it. And that's a certain mindset. It's not like the way things have to be. Our entire experience at the dump seems to be an example of things as they could be. Take, for example, the dump's pride and joy. This is the sculpture garden. One of our artists, Susan Steinman, designed and built it in 1991. It's about three acres. But the, these are other recycled materials. The bricks are from uh, the spur building that came down on Mission Street, the old spur building. And then the gravel is from the Embarcadero Freeway. When it came down in 89, they ground it up after the Loma Prieta earthquake. And we use it here. The majority of these plants that you see over here were actually found in the green waste area and they were still alive. We just had to put them back in the ground and then we gave them some compost and some water and they're doing fine. You know, people always want new things no matter what they are. I mean, when you go up into the sculpture garden, which is this kind of hill that's sort of behind all the buildings and stuff, you have a much greater vantage point on what's around there. It's one of the places they take you when you go there on a public tour. And I think it's all, it's, it's fairly altruistic. I mean, beyond the PR part of it, it's for them a way to connect what they're doing with trash to people's lives. Or like, there's an idea that people can approach the subject through art or artistic expression. A good example of how that connection seems to be translating well is through the popularity of the art openings at the dump. On a typical opening night, almost 600 people will attend, and they're not staying away because of the smell. In fact, Micah told us that the dump even smells better these days. He said that the worst smells come from decomposing organic waste, basically all the food we throw away. Now that people are composting more, the stench has grown fainter to a point. Uh, the smells don't bother me anymore. There's only one smell that's really bad here, and it doesn't happen very often, but we have some food waste we have, to, we have to put into a big box and then put superheated water into it to boil it. Um, it's food waste that comes off of cruise ships because it could bring something over from another country. So there's a steam in the air, you know, and it, you can't escape it. It's like, you know, the fog, you know, the horrible, stinky, stench fog. In spite of whatever smells might be looming, people are still coming to the dump, and it's clear that word is getting out. Hundreds of people attend the art openings, and we're 50% better at recycling now than we were 15 years ago. But for me, the clearest sign that the idea of reuse is gaining momentum comes from the dump workers themselves. This is the guys who work here, put this stuff together. They, I don't know, he started this bear thing. It's their art, load checkers. And these on the, on the hill up here, these are all things that have been thrown away 
and the guys who work here have put them up on the hill. The dump is kind of like, you get to see your life, like your personal life, the way that you use and discard objects, writ large, really large. Like you get the scale of a city and you kind of think like, oh God, like the primary thing that humans do is just like move things from one place to another. And it's just constantly going on. Objects only come to be because of human desire and they get discarded because they're no longer desirable. But that's all about us. The Artists in Residence program at the San Francisco Dump is designed to help us respond differently to our environment and raise awareness about the waste we create as a society. And it's one of the few programs that tries to change the way we think about the stuff we use. Throwing something into the recycling bin is good, but giving that item a second or even a third life before it gets recycled is better. And that's what Micah and others in the residency program hope for. I think I've become more optimistic because I get to work with the kids and I get to see how excited they are. It makes me hopeful that they are going to make an effort that, that I've only begun to make and they're just 10 or 12 years old. So I've, I've become more optimistic that way. But then sometimes when I walk out around and it's still there, the same amount, it gets a little like, oh, is it ever going to stop? It just keeps coming, you know? The residency program is a role model for us. To give us permission to tap into that place where we can go from seeing something as trash to seeing it as something more. Using one object for only one purpose is not enough. And as Scott says, to see only one function is a certain mindset, which is not how it has to be. When you bring a bag home from the grocery store and you've taken all the groceries out, try to get that bag to work at least once more, for well, that is what reusing is all about. Once is not enough. Once is not enough. Rebecca Fiffner is an arts administrator at Headland Center for the Arts, an artist-in-residence program in Marin. Matt Larson is a graduate student in the biophysics program and a producer for the Storytelling Project. of throwing away as a voluntary act, something you do when you're in the happy position of having too much stuff and you need to get rid of some of it. And maybe it's a bonus that something you don't need or want anymore could be really useful to someone else. But this voluntary part of throwing things away isn't always the case. In our fourth piece, Cassiana McLenahan indulged her fascination with estate sales, the garage sales that are held after someone has died, and found out what was going on behind the scenes of the voyeuristic madness. When we opened up on Thursday, we had 88 people on our sign-up list waiting to get in. And we control how many people we let in at one time, just so that those, those first 25 people or so on the list get first shot, and it's not total chaos. Because if you've ever been to a sale where they let everybody in all at once, it is chaos. People always beat down the doors to Debbie Edgen sales, which she holds throughout the Bay Area. But she's not a gallery owner or fashion designer. My mother and I run a business called Antique Madness for mother and daughter, and we work strictly by word of mouth. She runs estate sales. 
Every month or so, Debbie and her mom are asked into a home to appraise its contents. All of its contents. The bric-a-brac and kitchen appliances, Christmas decorations and cardigan sweaters, family photo albums and Tiffany's lamps. Estate sales are kind of like garage sales on steroids. Instead of baby clothes and a forlorn Nordic track strewn across a neighborhood driveway, estate sales are held after the original owner has died. To offload the person's belongings, families turn to services like those run by the Edgens. While this process may be traumatic for the family, it's a boon to collectors. Debbie originally started out as a collector herself, with a particular penchant for vintage Christmas decorations. She talked about her best estate sale find. I collect mostly depression glass, uh, anything western, old you know, cowboy western type stuff, and vintage Christmas stuff. And I found some Christmas stuff at a sale out in Saratoga. It was um, an old set of Christmas lights. They're these red plastic Christmas lights, and they were in the original box and, and everything from the 1950s. And so pretty. Do you use them? I do. I still use them. I still use them out in my patio. I put up 18 Christmas trees every year, and yeah, I know. My absolute best find for resale was an old Tonka truck that I picked up for about $5. It was from the 1950s, and I ended up selling it on eBay for over $1,400. Today, Debbie's the one behind the register, leaving the collecting up to the hundreds of people who will come through the house over the three-day sale. It's Saturday, day three, and everything has to go. The house still looks pretty full to me. It's as if someone came in and emptied every cupboard and drawer, neatly lining up their contents on card tables. But the order isn't accidental. What did the house look like yes. when you guys got here? <laughs> uh, I would describe chaos. it as chaos. Very unorganized chaos. <laughs> and so we had to, what we start when we come into the house is we just start sorting and we decide okay this room is where we're going to put the clothing this room is where we're going to put the linens this is where the nice glass is going to go this is where the lesser expensive glass is going to go and we just start digging through and sorting from room to room to get things set up and this house was a challenge we sorted for three weeks cluttered yeah i would say (laughs) underscore cluttered that's bruce tiernan the son-in-law even though he was family, Bruce's presence at the sale was an afterthought and certainly not required. Once a family brings in the edgins, they're pretty much hands-off, leaving the house to the edgins as they sort, pile, and price. I'm here just to observe what's going on, and thank God everything is going. <laughs> I asked Bruce a little more about the house, what it looked like when his mother-in-law was alive. I mean, how was it? Could you, like, could you move through? No, very rarely. No, no, no. The, most of the living room was, was full. The family room was full. All the bedrooms were full. So you just had access maybe to the hallways in her bedroom and the bathrooms, and that's about it. What were they full of? Junk. Stuff. Stuff. And have they managed to sell it? Oh, yeah. They've sold almost 75% of it. That's just crazy. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. How many chairs do you think she had? Oh, my gosh. There were, in the living room alone, there were about 12. Yeah. And then there were a few others scattered around the house. We had every toy imaginable from the 50s and 60s that any two girls could ever want to play with. You know, Kenner Easy Curl and Barbie stuff and Shirley Temple doll from the 1960s. She just didn't throw away anything. No, no, she didn't. She had girdles. 
Yes, girdles and... I don't even know how a girdle works. <laughs> this seems to be a unifying feature of estate sales. You hear it time and again from organizers and family members alike, a tone of bemused exasperation as they itemize the things that this house collected. Not every death results in an estate sale. Parents who call their kids and say, I'm moving, or I'm cleaning out the garage, just don't seem to amass the volume necessary to bring in the antique madness machine. To merit an estate sale, you need to be a hardcore, dedicated pack rat. In hearing Debbie and Bruce describe the house, I couldn't help but wonder how she managed to create such a collection, and what the story was behind her stuff. this type of musing that drew me to estate sales in the first place. While Debbie and her fellow collectors get excited about the individual items, a set of Christmas ornaments, or a vintage toy, what gets me going is the house itself. They're like a time capsule, and stepping through the front doors is like turning back the clock 40 years. The carpets are shag, the wallpaper's plaid, the kitchen floor is a yellowish patterned linoleum. I thumb through people's old books and magazine collections, look through their closet, and generally snoop through their belongings, trying to imagine what their life was like. It's the ultimate people-watching. You can stare as long as you like, and the fodder for speculation is far more interesting than trying to decipher what someone's book bag really says about them. And by contrast, I was a little indignant about the people who rifle through an estate sale without this sense of respect or curiosity for the individual who so recently occupied the space. I asked Debbie if she was ever concerned that estate sales felt like a gross opportunity for scavengers. It is to a certain extent, but what we try to enforce with our clients is the fact that they've already gone through and picked out the things that mean something to them, that have the memories that they want to keep. The rest of the, the stuff is just stuff. You know, it, it, if it doesn't mean enough for you to take it home and put it in your own home, then somebody else is going to take it to their home and treasure it and use it rather than it going to the landfill. So the idea is kind of that they've already chosen out, they've picked their memories out from the, this, this sort of... Right, right. And it's kind of, it's the ultimate recycling, you know? <laughs> this started to put the estate sale into a different light. Before an item comes to market, the surviving family looks it over and decides its sentimental worth. Kids hold on to their favorite toys and books from their childhood, their mother's best linens and china. They pick out the objects that hold memories for them. But unlike their mother, they don't know the story behind each object. They don't know what was special to their parent, don't know what motivated them to hold on to all these things. That significance dies with the original owner. Once the kids have come through and collected the placeholders of their own memories, the rest of it really is just stuff. grand irony of estate sales, that it's probably the most private people, the people who most value their stuff, whose houses are worth organizing for an estate sale in the first place. It's those people who are attached to their stuff, who can't stand to throw anything away, whose most intimate belongings then become the subject of a three-day firestorm sale. And while I had some idea of this tension before I arrived at the house that Saturday, it was in speaking to Bruce that it was punched into sharper relief. How do you think she would have felt about having people pick through her house like this? I don't think she would appreciate it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, she's a very private person, extremely private. I had no friends and sort of lived cloistered for 20 years. In fact... Uh, before she died, I was only in this house twice in 20 years, and my kids weren't hardly in here at all. 
So there I was, happily looking through her things, voyeuristically picking through her life without her permission. While before I was frustrated with the people who treated the whole thing like a big garage sale, racing through the house, indiscriminately piling up stuff, I now started to wonder if perhaps their approach wasn't the less intrusive. And the picture that Bruce painted of his mother-in-law made my heart ache. She didn't like people coming into her space. Oh, no. Not even the family. In fact, there were times when she never let her daughters in. Do you know why? She married a man who was absolute controlling. And I underline absolute. She couldn't make phone calls unless he gave her permission. She basically wore what he wanted. She never went anywhere by herself. And uh, she fixed dinner the way he wanted. Virtually total control. And so once he was gone... What did she have? After her husband's death, the house slowly transformed into a museum of stuff. So much stuff that moving through the house was nearly impossible. And hidden behind this collection of things was a rather tragic, presumably lonely woman. It wasn't until I got home that I realized that no one ever told me her name. Hearing Bruce's story about his mother-in-law made me think about my own 80-year-old grandparents. They, too, have lived in their house for nearly 50 years, but unlike this place, their house feels lived in. My grandmother paints in the back bedroom, and her art supplies scatter the table, next to a wall of Tupperware containers filled with varieties of wool that she spins on an old-fashioned spinning wheel, like out of Sleeping Beauty. This is the sole untidy spot in the house. The garage still fits two cars, and while it houses a couple of boxes of mementos, that's pretty much it. And I'm quite certain that when they pass away, there will be no estate sale. Cassiana McGlenahan is a senior at Stanford and a producer for the Storytelling Project. our show on trash today with a piece of fiction. A drawer stuffed with loose photographs tossed in absentmindedly over a period of years might as well be a trash bin. That is, until someone comes along to rescue the lost photos. Lindsay Sellers tells the story of someone performing just that during rescue. Cataloging mess or fate or what happened. I toyed with organization. Chronological, geographical, Pink-themed, grandma's skin hanging like silk, the bottoms of Michael's feet as he sprawled on the couch at four years old, my horse's nose where the first stopped to reveal inches of rawness, Uncle Andy's camp uniform after he did the laundry with beets in his pockets, mom who had slid 55 years of loose photos into that drawer, once wore slutty skirts and had acne on her chin. Dad dated three women with short black hair. A caption in flowery script. Gary, order your favorite drink first, and later, whatever's cheap. They honeymooned in Hawaii after law school and played golf at dusk. I made an album for each of the grandparents. 
Nana with her pockets of just-in-case tissues, shopping with me at Walmart after the hurricane. Papa's army scrapbooks were irreplaceable, but we bought cheap substitutes for every other drowned thing. I was ecstatic about my mission. Nana is going to sit on this bench, find the items on the list, and bring them to us. I added a fuchsia lipstick I hoped Nana would dislike and pass on to me. And then Grandma again, younger, without any makeup and her hair in rollers. I thought of the jade cardigan in my closet, the one she bought for me because I should wear colors that bring out my eyes. And it still has its tags, even though Grandma's been dead 11 months. And one of Grandpa sitting beside her in their living room on Sullivan Street, tugging at his ear, enacting our favorite joke about the man who switches off his hearing aid whenever his wife speaks. He told me that losing Grandma was like an amputation, or coming home to find that his bedroom had gotten smaller, and smaller again the next day. I compiled 12 volumes and a box filled with landscapes and photos where no one looked good. Mom thanked me. It will be nice to have these back. We stacked the albums into the drawer again, saying I love you without the words. Lindsay Sellers is a senior at Stanford and an editor-in-chief of Leland Quarterly Magazine. Today's program was produced by myself, with help from Charlie Mintz, who also engineered. The Stanford Storytelling Project is produced by Jonah Willingans and Lee Constantino. Thanks to Lydia Santos, Colleen Hansen, Matt Larson, Cassiana McLenahan, and Lindsay Sellers. Original music for the show was written and performed by a lot of people. Noah Burbank, Nimbleweed, Daniel Adams, Young Believer, Japandi, and Kissing Johnny. Special thanks to Noah Burbank for his Rubber Ducky remixes, and a very special thanks to Sesame Street for entertaining us for 40 years. Happy birthday, Sesame Street. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. And a quick plug for a great event happening on campus. The Fall MFA Documentary Film Screening is this Thursday, December 10th at 7.30 p.m. in Annenberg Auditorium. Visit art.stanford.edu for more information. Tune in next quarter for a whole new series of episodes. We'll be tackling tough subjects like genetics, defamiliarizing the familiar, and hair. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Hannah Krakauer. Thanks for listening.